Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Klickfeld. I guess we'll start with verse 17, but we're going to focus on verse 20. So if you're in Eitz Chaim Chumas, it's page 488. If you're in any Tanakh, it's the 20th, 25th chapter of Exodus, verse, verses 17, second Aliyah. Some of you who are here today are in my Rashi class, and I want, to, I want you to look at these verses with your Rashi brain on, in the sense of trying to figure out what are the questions we should be asking about this verse. We're going to do a little bit quicker than we do in Rashi, where we get through maybe a half a verse a week, because I want us to get through and to verse 20, and then look at a couple of commentaries in verse 20. But I want to build it up. So verse 17, Vasita chaporet zahav tahor, some kind of a a covering you're going to make over the tabernacle, over the ark, um, which is going to be made of pure gold. Kaporet, by the way, is an interesting word we can spend time and we're not going to, but it, it means some kind of a covering here, but it's from the root lechaper, an, atone, an atonement, a cleansing, a cleaning, but it means a covering here. Omatayim bachetzi orka, two and a half amaz is its um, uh, width or length, v'amavachetzi rochba, and one and a half wide. Uh, and a cubit is about six inches. Sorry, about 18 inches. V'asita shnaim kruvim zahav. You should also make two kruvim. The Torah doesn't tell us what kruvim are. We're supposed to understand it. You may know it from the English word cherub. The English cherub comes from the word kruvim, right? To be cherubic is to have like a, uh, a sweet baby face. It's an English adjective built from a word that comes directly from the Torah, a kruv. Kruv both means cauliflower and cherub, okay? Um, or maybe cabbage. Maybe it's cabbage, not cauliflower. Uh, and it, these two kruvim are made of gold. Miksha ta'ase otam. Make them, uh, we often translate miksha here as hammered, but, 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 uh, having having something hard been done to it from kashe, kind of hardened or flattened out. Mishnei ketzot hakaporet, from either end of the kaporet. So we have this covering over the uh, over the aron, and you have these two kruvim made of gold um, that are on either side of them. And some of you have seen, I'm sure, images and artwork of this. People have been trying to reproduce the kruvim for many, many centuries. No one knows exactly. Make one of these kruvs, cherubs, on one side. And another cherub on the other side. Min hakaporet, either sides of this cover. That's where you should make these kruvim, a little bit repetitive. On both sides, it's now repetitively repetitive. And now the verse that I want to focus on, but I wanted us to get there in the text, and here again put intense Rashi uh, uh, minds on what questions would you ask on this verse. The Hayuha Kruvim, and this is what the cherubs will be. Porsei Chnafayim, spreading out their wings, like Lifros is to spread something out, like Ufros Alinu Sukach Lomecha, asking God to uh, spread out God's shelter of peace over us. Um, spreading out the wings, so now we're told, by, by, by being told that their wings are being spread out, we're also being told that they had wings. We, had, we, the reader, did not know they had wings yet, but now we're being told that the wings are spread out. Ah, we're supposed to infer that they had wings. Lamala, their wings are spread out upward, 
שוכחים בחנפיהם, לסחוח, סחח, to cover, right? שוכחים בחנפיהם על הכפורת. By their wings, they are שוכחים, they are covering, here it says shielding, על הכפורת. The very cover, so they're both like on, on, on top of the cover, on either sides of the cover, and covering the cover with their wings. Very hard to actually construct this, even if you had a 3D printer. Ufnehem ish el achiv, literally, and their faces. How else can we translate it? A man to his brother. That's what it means. Ish, a man, el achiv, to his brother. We probably can. Assume that it means face to face, but it doesn't say face to face. It says their face is a man to his brother. El hakaporet. So we have two L's here, two prepositions. Their faces are el achiv, and they're also el hakaporet. That's very hard to do. Can I look at you and look at the ark at the same time? I don't know. Is this, an, is this a diagonal? Am I angled in so that at the corner of my eye I'm seeing you if I'm one kruv, and I'm also el hakaporet? This is hard geometry. And now another repetitive redundancy from the Department of Redundancy Department. That's how the faces of the Kruvim should be. Okay. So try to scrape your sense of what this looks like based on iconography you've been exposed to. But just based on the words that I have said in Hebrew and in English, you have it. A, what's your image of what this looks like? And B, what questions do you have on verse 20 in particular? And I, I don't see every one of you. If we go into gallery mode, I'll see more of you. But right now, I'm just seeing some of you. But if you have a, you have a question, raise your hand, and I'd be happy to have you be called on. Larry, if Larry could be unmuted. Sorry, okay. Um, two quick preliminaries. I didn't tell Rebecca, uh, Rabbi Chas this morning, your text should check the mic after services. The mic is a little fuzzy today. Secondly, Rabbi Schatz also sang Mishinichnas. Uh, uh, she did? Yeah. Oh, good. Good. We're on the same wavelength. Is it, it's, it's, it's a fuzzy mic. You cannot hear me yeah. clearly? I hear you fine. We hear you fine, but it's fuzzy. Okay. I'll try to articulate even more. No, it's not you. It, it's, it's the mic. Anyway. I think actually just, if you push the mic a little bit away from you so you're not right on top of it, it won't be as fuzzy. How about that? Is that a little better or same? It's a little better, but I think I, we heard it this morning with Rabbi Schatz, okay. but I wanted to make a comment. Um, you asked what, what we think about it. The first thing I think about, because we only did it last week, is the passage from Isaiah, where he's talking about Serafim and not about Chruvim. Uh, and I admit I get mixed up between the two and what they are. But in the, the Serafim, we're also standing in attendance, and each of them had six wings two of which they used to cover their face, and two of which they used to cover the legs, and two of which they used in order to fly. Mm-hmm. So these creatures, whatever they would be, were indeed rather complicated and actually sound rather insect-like. Interesting, the insect-like. The, yes, they're, they're, they're multi-winged. Um, we don't have internal to the text here any understanding for why they have wings. Unless the only purpose of the wings is to actually cover the cover, right? So they are so they're so hechiching the kaporet. Um, it, there's nothing about these wings that suggest flight. It's just that we're, that that they're that they're supposed to be um, 
looking upward, and at the same time, they're supposed to be covering the co- covering the cover. Um, Can I say and, and, one more thing? Yeah. It's a question. Um, I'm not entirely sure if it's true, if it's a kaf or a chet, but kaporet, if you invert the letters, is like a parochet. Good. Right. So there are a lot of words in the Mishkan that deal with versions of the same thing. So when we go to the curtain, which we don't have in our Arona Kodesh, we usually refer to that as a parochet. That cup that is the separator between the kahal and the Arona Kodesh. Parochet can also be used as the dressing on the Torah. And parochet and kaporet are both used in the, in the Mishkan. Both of them are some kind of a divider, um, curtain covering of something, right? Um, and you're right that kaporet and par, parochet are sort of anagrams of one another, right? They're not the same root, but they're, but they're anagrammed. And the more, and the more I think about the second thing you said, Larry, it's really hard to know what to make of the, geometry of the faces and the geometry of the wings. I'll just repeat myself because it's a repetitive section. Their faces are to one another and to the comporet, and, and their wings are simultaneously upward, and also, but also, they're upward, but they're not upward because they're covering the thing that's right there. It's, a, it's, it's almost like an Escher painting, right? That where that you, you go up, but by going up, you get down to where you were. Uh, someone else, Joanna. I, I, I've always been puzzled by this um, in light of the second commandment. Like this feels very like kind of in violation of the second commandment, especially that it's going to be in a place where we pray and we are going to be bowing down. And what is this doing here altogether? Great. So we have a meta question, right? So we, we have some, some, some micro questions on the imagery and the geometry, but there's a meta question, and the meta question can best be asked like this. What? Right? Like, what? That, that, that's the first, that should be the classic first Jewish response to this. What? Particularly, wait, if we get to Sforno, wait till we get to Sforno, because Sforno, Sforno's commentary is interesting, but it reinforces Joanna's, what's going on here? Why, why, why do we have the, particularly if we are right, right, if we back translate kruv from what we think the word cherub means, and these are faces of a, of a human-like being, which, by the way, the Torah does not say, right, the Torah, the Torah says nothing about, about their faces being human-like, just the word panim, right, panim could also mean in, innards, inside, so, so there's a lot of ex post facto, um, assumptions as to what this verse means, but even so, there's, it's strange to have a figure protecting the Arona Kodesh and the two tablets upon which, upon one of which is written, don't do this. <laughs> so great, great meta question. Brant? Yeah, well, to me, that, that what I'm puzzled by is the duality of the two faces. Well, clearly it has some sort of meaning that you face each other and you face the word of God. And, and you know, the only way you can picture this in my mind is two, two diametric things facing each other, but their eyes are fixed on what's below them, but their faces face each other. But the English uses the word faces both times, but it must have some significance between the two things that are important, each other and then the word of God. That's Wonderful. Wonderful. That'll be a great jumping off point to the first commentary we're going to look at. But before we get there, 
part of this, as, as my Rashi class knows, is always a question of translation. So to, the, the preposition L means to or towards. But as you're rendering this into English, there are a lot of different things you could do with it because they could be angled towards one another, but that doesn't mean that they're looking at one another, right? So it could be that they're angled towards one another. That could be the ufnehem ish elachiv, but they're also looking at the kaporet because they're supposed to be glancing down at the very thing, the very thing they're protecting. Even though it's the same preposition, it doesn't mean that it's the same that, that, that those, the preposition is, con, is denoting the same thing twice over. But let's use um, uh, Brandt's comment as a jumping off point to the first commentary. Do, do, do most of you have the text in front of you? Okay. So uh, the first one I want to look at is the Malbim. This is Rabbi Meir Leibush ben Yechiel Michal Wisser. Great name. He lived in the, ni- in the 19th century in the Ukraine. And he, like many people, you open up a Mikro and you certainly open up Safaria, and you know some verses get some attention and some verses get a lot of attention. No one doesn't say something about Ufnehem Ish Alachiv. It's, it's as the rabbis would say, Zeomer Darsheni. This verse is basically saying, please drash me out. Because it's not only a question of what these what it, what we're supposed to be understanding in terms of the geometry of it, but why the language Ish Alachiv? And why brotherhood? And why faces? Okay. This is what the Melvin says. Aseret hadibrot ktufim ashnei luchot avenim. We all know that the Ten Commandments are written on two, two stone tablets, and he doesn't, say, he doesn't say it explicitly, but implied, which are in the, um, the, the I don't know, the, the ark that these cherubs are on top of and guarding. So they're right there, as Joanna was kind of hinting at. Machatzitam mizeh, on half of those tablets, and what he's about to do is an oversimplification that is just accepted. I know it's a strange thing to say. You, you could poke holes at this, except it's just an, an accepted thing. Mitzvot shebein adam l'makom. On half, on one half of the tablets are mitzvot that are between a person and the Holy One. Umachatzitam mizeh. And on half of them, mitzvot shebein adam and half of them are mitzvot between one person and another. What is um, flawed or, 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 or um, imprecise about this? Most people say that it's the first five that are the mitzvot ben adam l'makom between us and God, and the second five are the ones between us and other people, except that the fifth of the first five is honor your mother and your father. That seems to be an interpersonal mitzvah, not a primarily a God mitzvah. So the way that is you know, something to drosh out is that it, it, that your your parents kind of represent God's creative force in your life, and so by honoring them, you're honoring God. Yeah, but it's much easier to think of those as a, a mitzvah between you and another person. But if we accept the flawed reduction here, half of the tablets, one half, one tablet represents half of the mitzvot that are between you and God. So there's one cherub on that side, and half of the mitzvot represent the mitzvot between you and people, and there's one cherub, one kruv on that side. The Amra HaTorah, and the Torah used this particularly poignant language I'm editorializing a little bit, Ufnehem Ish El Achiv. Instead of just saying they were near each other or side by side, their faces looking like a brother looks at a brother's face, Mechuvanim Zelazeh, intentional towards one another. Uh, directed towards one another with kavana, 
and this is what he pulls out of it. This is the the, the Musar Haskel, the the ethical teaching he pulls out of this geometry. And this is, of course, not the only place that he or anyone else says this, but it's a lovely thing that he's pulling from it. You cannot observe the mitzvot or say you're observing the mitzvot between you and God except if you are also observing the mitzvot between you and another person. All of us are sensitive to this, usually in other people more than ourselves, right? When someone who exemplifies a certain ritual from kite but is a scoundrel, is unethical, uh, unethical in business dealings, unethical in tax dealings, uh, unethical, I would say, and I don't mind saying this on camera, in how they hold themselves during a pandemic, right? They won't miss a mincha, and that's the relationship between them and God, but they don't seem to have that much care for the society around them whom they're trying, whom they should be um, helping to prevent get the get a virus, right? So the Malbim says these two cherubs, one of them is a mitzvot for God cherub, one of them is a mitzvot for people cherub, and they're interconnected. They're inextricably linked. And then he says something which is often forgotten when people are waxing a little bit self-righteous about the ritually righteous people who are not ethically righteous, also the reverse, right? If you end it before the comma, then the sermon is, unless you're uh, honest, an honest tzaddik, your observance of Shabbat means nothing, right? I've given that sermon 136 times, right? But he adds two words to reverse it, he's, he, he's, a, he's a very firm rabbi after all. He would also make the claim, and I, I suppose there's a piece of me that would also make the claim that the Jewish approach to ethics is also to take ritual observance seriously and that we don't, say, we, we, we don't frown on poo-poo the notion of ethical humanism, but the Jewish approach to God's revelation is that it's also not enough to be honest and kind and generous. You've got to do Shabbos if you're a Jew. You've got to do Torah study. And you've got to observe Pesach, right? So what he's pulling from this is the two halves of the, of the realm of mitzvot standing over the source of these mitzvot, the Ten Commandments, facing one another like two brothers. And they're Siamese. If you try to split them apart, they will perish. They have to be connected to one another. Let me pause there. Comments, reactions on how the Malbim reads this phrase. Or on, if not on how he reads it, on, on the concept that he is reinforcing. I'm only seeing five screens. So I don't know if someone else is trying to raise their hand. Going once. James, if you see someone raising their hand, you can let me know. Okay. So um, I, think, I think we're okay. Let's go to the next one. The Pardes Yosef. It's not someone I've studied much of, but I found this commentary. Great last name, Rabbi Yosef Patsanowski. 20th century Poland. We know what happened, sadly, tragically, to most of the great sages in the 20th century in Poland. I don't remember the exact uh, story of, of whether or not he survived the Shoah, but he was considered a, a pretty well-known and beloved commentator. And he says something similar, but he comes at it from a different, um, uh, from a different um, language angle, and I think he pulls something out which is subtly different than what the Malbim says. Commenting on the same phrase, Ufnehem ish elachiv, their faces to one another. 
he, he does a very Tosafotish kind of a thing. What the Tosafot and the Talmud is, they say, you're reading this section. This is a, you know, a, a, a gross reduction of how, of how the Tosafot read the Talmud. And the Tosafot assume that you know all the rest of the Talmud, and you're going to say to yourself and ask, how does this not conflict with something that I read in a different tractate on page 83b? So the Pardes Yosef assumes that we know all of Tanakh, and therefore, as we're reading through this source that describes the building of the Mishkan, the temporary tabernacle in the desert, we're also thinking in our head of the description of the permanent temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple, right? That we know the book of Chronicles by heart. I do not, he did. But yet, he says, when it comes not to the Mishkan of the desert, but the Mikdash, the temple of Solomon, it says in the second book of Chronicles, chapter 3, verse 13, so almost the very end of the Tanakh, Ufnehem Labayat. When the, when the Kruvim, when the cherubs are being described when it comes to Solomon's temple in the second Chronicles, it doesn't say their faces are facing one another. It says that the faces are facing Leviat. Now that in and of itself is an interesting phrase. Facing the house? Does that mean facing the building? Does it mean facing the housing of the uh of 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 the um I can't speak of the tablets that are there? So He's not going to ask that question as to what the word bayat means in, in situ at that spot, but he's comparing it to our description, right? Why in one place are they facing another, and why in another place are they seemingly facing the structure itself? Even though, by the way, parentheses, in Truma, it seems to say they're facing both, ish el-achiv and el-hakaporet. Lo kasha. This apparent conflict is not a conflict. One of these um, placements of the Kruvim represents an era in which Israel is doing the will of the Holy One. And one of them, don't read ahead, by the way, I know you're about to, but don't read ahead. And one of them represents when Israel is not doing the will of the Creator, and he tells you where this is from. This is from Baba Bacha, tracted Baba Bacha, page 99. Pause right there, particularly if you haven't read ahead. This is a very classic rabbinic way of doing something, saying this is not a conflict because one of these reflects one position, one situation, and one represents another, but it doesn't tell you which one is which. I want to ask you, which one do you think is which? Is Tnehem Ish El Achiv representing a, a kind of... A, um, a salutary moment where the Jewish people are doing God's will and Ufnehem Labayat, their faces to the house, representing when they're not doing God's will, or the reverse, and why? And there's no wrong answer, because he's going to give an answer, but this is, this. you, you can drosh out both. I'm curious what your initial instinct is. Anyone? Which one represents, you think, um, doing God's will, and which represents not doing God's will? Particularly if you haven't read ahead. Anyone? Well, when they're facing the 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 um, uh, the tap the the whatever the where the where the Ten Commandments are, that is doing the will of God. And then when they're facing each other, that's when they're not doing the will of God. Okay, that is a very reasonable and compelling argument, right? That when the, even though the Malbim read they're facing one another as an intimate act of the two sides of Torah facing each other, you could make the argument, if they're looking 
at each other, they're focusing on mundane things. They're focusing on social things. They're representing people who don't see God. They just see people. But when the cherubs look at the bayit, the Beit HaMikdash, ah, that must be the time when the Jewish people also have their faces to the, to, to, to the bayit. We, want, we don't want to just be looking at Joe. We don't want to be looking at God. So the face, the placement of the cherubs could represent that, right? That's a compelling argument. Pardes Joseph reads it exactly the opposite. Marlies, was your hand up? I couldn't tell. Yeah. Yeah, no, well, I know, now you're saying the answer. I was just going to say that in both time periods, I think more of times when people were not doing the will of God. So it could have been, it could have been either one. Yes, and, and, and there's a commentary I didn't bring that was similar to this that was saying that it was specifically in the not in the first temple, but it was the second temple that was understood to be destroyed because people were not treating one another well, whereas in the first temple, it was destroyed because people were not treating God well. And so that might suggest that it's the cherubs in the chronicle source, in Devei HaYamim, that where they're looking at the bayat, that suggests the people are not representing God's will. But let's see how the Pardes Yosef reads it. Uflehem ishalachiv and their faces towards one another. That's truma. That's the mishkan. That is beosim rutsono makom. Faces to one another, according to the party of Yosef, represents the Israelites doing exactly what God wants them to do. Shezehu rutsono. That's actually what God wants. Sheyidag kol echad laachiv. Just take care of your brother. Ula zulato. Zulato means the only one or one's only one. Here it's a reference to God. And, I, I, and even though it doesn't say it specifically this way, I think he's connecting it, that God wants you to take care of your brother, to look into your brother's or your sister's eyes. And in that way, you're actually being doeg. You're taking care of, you're concerned for the only one, the holy one, the atzmo, and not just yourself, ulaveto, and your house, bilvad. And now you can see because how he's using the word house in the setting, how he's going to reverse, reverse it. But when their houses are to the house, he's reading house here not as the house, the big house, but your house, your bills, your needs. When your faces are just looking at your own house, when each person is just thinking about what he or she needs, and their own self-obligations, that's not what God wants. If we compare these two, we get something interesting. The Malbim says that what has to be like in, in order and in relationship are duties to one another and our duties to God, right? And if they're not aligned, then the cherubs have been have been have been separated from one another in a violent way. The Pardes Yosef is saying something subtly different. He's saying that the, the, the way that you do meets vote for God is by treating one another well. Not just that you have to do both, but that that, that is the highest way you can observe God's will. And if you're only focusing on your own needs, right? If you're only focusing on your needs, then you might finish the day self-satisfied. You might even say all the brachot you're supposed to say, but you are living or helping to create an era where the cherubs are not facing each other. They're facing the bayat like you are, and that's considered a lower and baser and less religious way of living. Okay, um, 
comments and reactions. We have uh, uh, just a few minutes left for a very complicated text, but I want to bring it to you because it's interesting and it goes in an entirely different direction. So this last one by Sforno is, is not going to wrap it all up. It's just a, a different way of reading this verse. Anyone? I like the second guy better. Tell me why. Because he's basically saying that you, man is not an island, that you can't just just look at your house and say that it's clean and not look at the outer world. You have yeah. to care about your fellow man. That speaks to me. I, I'm just telling you, that's that's a fundamental belief that I have, that peace in your own house is not enough. Yeah, yeah. And, right, and, and I might say back to him, peace in one's house sometimes is a precursor to your feeling well enough and enriched enough and and full enough to take care of others. But yes, if if your if your concern stops at your door, then you're in trouble. Um, listen, in Yana Dioma, things that we're dealing with right now. I don't know if any of you have noticed because I don't know. I, I literally have no idea when you've last been on the corner of La Siena, La Siena and Olympic. We're living in a broken city in many ways, and one of the ways in which LA is broken, aside from the pandemic issue, is this terrible scourge of, holi- of homelessness. And I'm using the word, word scourge there, not vis-a-vis what they, the homeless, are doing to us, but what we are allowing to happen to people in our city. And, I, and I, it's, I, I'm not suggesting there's a facile resolution to it. It's extremely, extremely, extremely complicated. But in the last few weeks, there's been a new kind of mini tent city that has um, uh, Pro, uh, just kind of been created on the other side of La Cienega from Beth Am. So when you walk out of Beth Am now, I don't know, four or five, six, seven tents, um, makeshift tents right there. At the same time that we're beginning to open up our school for more and more students. On the one hand, our responsibility, absolutely, to our kids, to our parents, is to make sure that our bayat is in order and that kids can walk in and out of our buildings safely and not be harassed and not be scared. But boy, is nimbyism a terrible disease. And boy, can, you, can, can we overly self-righteously claim that our need to take care of our own bayat is so strong that we're cherubs turning away from other cherubs. And I'm already beginning to hear it in our community. And I, I, I'll tell you, I, have, I didn't prepare to say this. It's just coming out right now. I'm not sure how we're going to handle it, right? Because... Uh, it will be, I can't imagine my rabbinic and religious self standing, uh, um, supporting the notion that one of the things that we need to do to make sure our bayat is safe is to somehow uh, re- re- remove these indigents from where they're living, as if we had that power, and move them where? Somewhere else? Because we'd rather them um, be, threat, you know, be, be considered to be a, a threat or an encroachment upon someone else? Right, so what the Pardes Joseph would say is that h- how do you want to make sure that the things that you're teaching your children and your adults inside the building are towards the will of God? Start by looking out your window and see how you're taking care of those folks. And this is very hard to do. Quickly on this four note, this is impossible to do this text um, uh, quickly. This is like scene change, totally different way of understanding it. And and I've read this, this Sforno many, many times, and I think I've got about 60% shot on it. Um, what you have here on the left, by the way, is not my translation. The other two are my translation. This is just, uh, I, I, I was preparing this very late uh, Shabbat, Friday afternoon. This is the translation on Safaria of this Sforno text. But I noticed as I was printing it that it's a, it, it's, um, 
it's an interpretive translation. It's not word for word. So you have it there, but I'm going to try to give it to you word for word on the Hebrew side. Amar The text said that these kruvim are going to spread out their wings upward. Amru, and we have already said where somewhere else, shahakruvim zachar unekeva hayu, that the cherubs were male and female, one male and one fe- one female. By the way, what we're about to have is a very normative and certainly very hetero- heteronormative text. Svona lived in the 16th century Italy. He could not have imagined the way that we think of gender and sexuality now. For the moment, I want to just understand what he's trying to say and not wonder how he, what he'd be doing if he were living in our generation, right? So he has an image of one cherub being male and one cherub being female. Hamorim pu'ulat hamsa'at haklalim mushatim, a very hard sentence to translate. These two cherubs which illuminate, hamorim, pu'ulat, the act of hamsa'at, of the creation of klalim mushatim, abstract principles. Somehow he's reading the kuvim and the maleness and the femaleness of them as representing how ideas come to be, how abstract ideas come to be, how knowledge comes to be, how knowledge of the world comes to be, and, and particularly how knowledge comes from the divine and ends up in our minds. By the way, Heschel talked a lot about that as well, right? Just the chutzpah to think that any one of us could ever understand one letter of Torah. We're flawed, limited human beings. And we believe in a text that has divine spark. Why do we think we understand even one word of it? It was tainted by us by the, the moment we received it. We did receive it, but it was tainted. And it, and, and it can't possibly be what God originally gave because God is God and we are we. Sforno is dealing with a similar philosophical conundrum and very gendered. Um... Shehi peulat hazachar hamamsio. In this formation, it is the act of the man, which is the giver. He's going very direct in terms of understanding and the biological understanding of how intercourse and insemination happens. Umorim kabalat otam hamufshatim shehi kepulat hanakiva, and it also illuminates that the receiving of those very abstract ideas that is the feminine act, right? So in the in in the biological act of intercourse and in the conceptual act of knowledge, the male delivers, the woman is the receptacle, right? That's as we know, unless you're doing it in vitro, that's kind of how it's happening. Va'amar ufnehem ishalachiv. And the Torah says that they should be a man to his brother, one to the other. The act of the invention, of the creation of these principles, and their abstraction, something like the way this happens is that it begins with a male, in this case, God, this is also kind of Kabbalistic, God, I'll use the word intentionally, inseminating the world with seminal ideas that are abstract, that can then be seen because they're intended towards the receiver of those ideas. That's us. We're the, we're the, we're the female in this situation. We're the Shekhinah. We're, we're the, the um, Knesset Yisrael, the feminine uh, God-human bar in the Kabbalistic hierarchy, 
אשר בא קניין השלמות המכוון. Something like that within that transmission, within that departure or coming down, I keep thinking of the Hebrew Yerida, this, what's the word, this descent. There is the Kinyan, there is the establishment or the acquisition, hashlamot, of perfection, hamechuvan, that was intended. You could teach a course on this. What I think Sforno is saying here is that what these Kruvim are representing, first of all, what they're protecting is the Aron Ha'idut, the Ark of the Pact, and inside it are the Ten Commandments and Torah itself. And according to a Jewish philosophical stance, at least Sforno's philosophical stance, that is the source of all knowledge. And it is representing that the source of all abstract knowledge is coming from Source A, that's God, male, deliverer, and being received, taken, and then nurtured in a womb by Source B, that's us, the female human presence. And something happens in that transmission that is critical, that is intimate. They're looking at each other, right? This is very much of an intimate image. And that's how God's Word and God's will comes to us. God births Torah inside us. God in, ensures somehow in ongoing revelation that the divine word, which emanates from a realm we can't possibly fathom, ends up in the human mind. I still fathom, I still um, think about this all the time, right? I, I, sometimes I just, I wake up and I wonder how it is that knowledge came to be and how consciousness came to be. And how it is that we end up being humans with seichel that try to understand the origins of all things and the reality of God. And according to Sforno, all of that transaction is represented by these kruvim facing each other in some kind of a touchless intercourse that is allowing this lower realm to receive upper illumination. And I just thought it was a fascinating, totally different read of the other two that I wanted to leave you with as we uh, Im- imagine the Kruvim, uh, not only in artistic representations, but really how they are written in the text and how some of the great rabbis throughout history have tried to deal, deal with them. Uh, Larry, please. I don't want to take up too much time. Um, facetiously, I'll say I'm kind of glad Barry's on here because I know where that where that commentary would go. Yes. Um, look, I see all the commentaries here as being similar, and they're getting back to Joanne's question, which is not only about the the the, the Kruvim, the cherubs. The, this entire chapter, it's an absurdity. It's an mm. absurdity that you you in all of your teaching and training, in all of your training as a rabbi, would would never include. In the Torah, because it's a vodazora, and the concept of the, the concept of God saying, "I'll meet you there," that He's going to dwell there, we can't possibly understand this in any literal sense. It has it has to be uh, figurative. It has to be a metaphor, because our God and our sense of what God's commanding us to do can't possibly be this. It's got to be something greater than this, much more abstract. And as you said, we can't possibly understand one letter. 
we can't possibly understand. I'm not saying that. Actually, I think I understand it, but I have a very different view, sort of anthropological, theological, anthropological view of how this came to be. Those people couldn't understand anything quite so abstract as what we have now, what we've developed. But all three of the commentators you have and all the other commentators, they're, they're, they don't want to deal with the, the, what I would consider the, the stark reality of, of what's written here, quite literally, that we have to reject. Yeah. We can't accept that God was dwelling, at least I don't think we can, that God told Moses he was going to dwell in the Mishkan, and he wanted all this gold and rings and the, speci- the, 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 the interior design that he was specifying. If, if so, God had a sense of humor Yes. Great, Larry. I, 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 I'm not going to respond to it because I, I can't improve upon it. Right. Let's leave it at that. That, that I think you're right. That I sense in these three commentaries and the many, many others you could bring, a silent discomfort that are not, not naming the discomfort, but you almost hear in their commentaries, I, I'm, I'm, I'm inferring from their commentaries, a silent discomfort with a pshat as is. And so they are reading all sorts of metaphors and representations and, and, and paradigms into this because the, the, the image of a human-like being representing God's presence in a particular spot on earth seems to be anathematic to them, given everything else they know about Jewish religion, right? Um, and yet the Kruvim, um, they, they, they beckon the attention of people throughout uh, history. Most of the Hebrew words in this Parsha do not turn into English. The cherubs do. There's something about them that, um, that fascinates us. Um, and um, we should continue to think about it in future times that we approach this Parsha. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.